This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. In this episode, Professor Jonathan Adler of Ariel University summarizes the findings of his latest book, The Origins of Judaism, an archaeological historical reappraisal. And for an introduction, I now give the word to Magnus Setterholm. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this guest lecture. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce Professor Jonathan Adler of Ariel University. Professor Adler earned his PhD from Bar Ilan University in 2011 and is presently as certified field archaeologist, the head of Archaeology Institute at Ariel University, as well as an associate professor. Professor Adler has published extensively on various aspects of archaeological evidence in the land of Israel, and his research and teaching has been rewarded with numerous prizes and awards. Last year, he published his probably his most important work so far. Maybe you agree. Good. Um, published by Yale University Press. I have the book here, and you have a picture of it there. Uh, the Origins of Judaism and Archaeological Historical Repraisal, a book he started working on while being the Horace W. Goldsmith Visiting Professor at Yale University, 2019 to 2020. In this book, Aller aims at solving the problem when Judaism emerged as a religion based on Torah observance, people started to observe the Torah as the Torah. So I'm very honored to welcome Professor Ale to Lund University for tonight's lecture on precisely the question of the origins of Judaism. Thank you. Thank you, Magnus. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, it's a pleasure to be here again. Um, so the question, the, the, what we're going to be speaking about uh, today is the book, essentially. I'll be summarizing the book. Uh, it's I only have about 45 minutes to summarize it, so I'll be going through it very quickly. Uh, but I think uh, the main points I should be able to get across. When I speak of Judaism, we have to begin with definitions. What, what is it that I'm asking? Uh, what, who, what origins am I seeking precisely? For much of history, much of Jewish history, the Jewish way of life has been characterized by adherence to myriad laws that we find uh, in the, the Torah. And that refers to such things as um, tefillin, uh, phylacteries, uh, mizuzot that, that are put on the doorposts, the purity laws, the festivals, Sukkot, uh, Passover, uh, Shavuot, uh, the fasting on the Day of Atonement, the Sabbath prohibitions, uh, circumcision, uh, a myriad laws that we find uh, that affect Jews from the moment they wake up in the morning till the minute they go to sleep at night, from cradle to grave. The question that I'm asking in this book is when did that begin? From which point in time did ordinary Jews first know about something called the Torah? Did they regard it as authoritative and put it into practice? That's, that's the question that I'm asking in this book. Again, the stress here is on ordinary Jews. Right? So I'm not asking about pietists or authors of biblical texts from when do we have a notion of Torah. That's not the question that I'm asking. I'm asking the question of rank-and-file Jews, someone you would meet on the street, the farmers, the craftsmen, the homemakers. When did they first know about the Torah, regard it as authoritative, and put it into practice. Before I begin uh, to speak about the methodology that I use for this book, I first have to situate the book within uh, the current research. Beginning in the 19th century, there has been 
a notion that Judaism begins after the exile. The exile is regarded as a watershed between something that's been called Hebraism or ancient Israel and post-exile, which is uh, called Judaism. And the basis for this idea that we have this watershed during the exile are the biblical stories. Particularly, Julius Wellhausen saw the story of Ezra, who is said to have come to Jerusalem and brought with him a Torah Moshe, a, uh, a Torah of, of Moses, uh, and publicly read this, this book before the assembled Judeans in the, uh, the uh, square of the water um, gate in Jerusalem. And this was the first time that these Judeans heard of this Torah, and they, they, they began to put it into practice. They gathered um, foliage from the surrounding hills, and they built Sukkot, according to Nehemiah 8. According to Wellhausen, he writes this in a, in a footnote, how does he know that this is history? The credibility of the narrative appears on the face of it. It sounds like a true story, so it must be a true story. This should be shocking to us, that an historian would take a biblical text, a biblical story, which sounds like it happened, and assume that it must have happened that way. And this is essentially the basis of this notion, which has become, I would say, accepted amongst scholars uh, quite, quite commonly. If you were to ask a uh, biblical scholar, a scholar of the Hebrew Bible, scholar of early Judaism, when does Judaism begin? They would tell you, chances are, that Judaism begins in the 5th century before the Common Era, in the time of Ezra. Again, the basis of it is this naive reading of the biblical story of Ezra. None of these scholars uh, from the 19th century and onwards that have accepted this, this notion have ever done something that scientists should do, and that's test the hypothesis. Uh, that, that's never been done. And that's what I propose to do uh, in this book. The method that I use is quite straightforward. I begin at a period of time when we know that there was this thing that I'm calling Judaism. We know that rank-and-file ordinary Jews knew about the Torah and were keeping the Torah on a wide-scale basis. Now, when I say a wide-scale basis, that doesn't mean that everyone was keeping the laws. And, of course, there were great debates about how to understand the laws and how, how exactly to put them into practice. But from a certain period of time, we certainly can speak of Judaism being widespread. And what I show throughout the book, and we'll see this during the course of the, the, the talk today, is that the first century of the Common Era was just such a time. The first century of the Common Era, so these are, this is the period of time when we have, first of all, lots of archaeological uh, evidence, as we'll see uh, during the, the, the course of this talk, and texts, Josephus, uh, New Testament texts, Philo, uh, non-Jews that are speaking about, uh, that, are, that are describing the Torah as being the law of the Judeans that's widely practiced uh, by Judeans. So I, I'm taking the first century of the Common Era as a baseline, as a benchmark. From there, I go backwards in time to see do we have evidence in the first century before the Common Era, in the second century before the Common Era, in the third century before the Common Era? How far back can we go and continue to find evidence for wide-scale observance of the Torah? Eventually, we'll reach the end of the trail, we'll, where we no longer find evidence for a wide-scale observance of the Torah. And then, once we've reached the end of the trail, what that means is... Judaism must have begun then or earlier. So in archaeological terms, we would call that a terminus antiquem. Right? So from that period of time or earlier, Judaism must have begun. And that's actually quite an important thing to be able to do, to be able to say, this is the evidence that we have for wide-scale observance of the Torah. Before that time, we don't have any evidence for wide-scale observance of the Torah. To cut to the chase... I'll tell you what the, what the 
conclusions are, although we're in the beginning of the talk, I'll, I'll already tell you the conclusions and we'll, we'll work backwards. Um, there is no, I have found no evidence for wide-scale observance of the Torah any time prior to the middle of the second century before the Common Era. So we're talking about the Hasmonean period, the period when uh, the Judeans in Judea were ruled by the Hasmonean, uh, rulers of the Hasmonean family. Prior to this time, I know of no evidence which, uh, which would sh demonstrate that Judeans, ordinary Judeans, were keeping the rules of the Torah on any kind of wide-scale basis, or in fact knew of any such Torah. When I speak of evidence, uh, in the book I look at two kinds of evidence. I look both at texts as well as material remains, so texts and archaeology. Obviously, both of them have to be uh, looked at carefully and, and critically, uh, but both are uh, important sources of information for, for looking at this question of when uh, Judeans are keeping the rules of the Torah. Very quickly, I'll just have a quick look at the a table of contents, and then we'll actually go through each of these chapters very quickly to see um, what the evidence is. So the first chapter um, looks at dietary laws, second chapter ritual purity, figural art, tefillin and mezuzot, miscellaneous practices, which will include circumcision, uh, the Sabbath prohibitions, the Day of Atonement, Sukkot, Festival of Tabernacles, uh, Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread, uh, and Minorot, so the, the notion that there's supposed to be a seven-branched candelabrum, menorah, in the, in the temple. I also take a look at that to see when this was widely known. The synagogue um, is not exactly a practice that we find in the Torah, but I think the synagogue is a very important phenomenon for understanding how Judaism spread. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, when we get to that chapter. And the final chapter, so the first six, the first six chapters look at exactly what I described taking the first century of the Common Era as the benchmark, and then moving backwards in time uh, to look for, for evidence to see how far back the evidence goes. That establishes our terminus antiquem, which, as I said, will, will be in the second century before the Common Era. The seventh and final chapter does something different. Here, I look at, okay, so we've established the terminus antiquem. Now what? I still would like to know how Judaism first emerged, and when. The Terminus Antiquem tells me from that time and earlier. The problem is that any time prior to the Terminus Antiquem, by definition, we don't have evidence. That's, that's the definition of a Terminus Antiquem. Before that time, we have no evidence at all. So we're dealing in a period of time where we don't have evidence. What I look for in this final chapter is contextual evidence, I would call it, um, what is going on in these earlier periods? So before the second century, before the Common Era, I begin with the Persian period. This is the period of time when most scholars would say that Judaism first emerges. What, what do we know about this period of time? What evidence do we have for uh, Judean practices, um, common practices at, at, at this period of time? I continue and then look at the early Hellenistic period and then finally the late Hellenistic period, the, the Hasmonean period, to see which period of time would be the best Sitzenleben to situate an emergence of, of Judaism. So that's what I do in the seventh chapter. I'd like to begin and go through each chapter. Again, we don't have a lot of time, so we'll go through it quickly and, and have a, a look at the, the, the evidence. The dietary laws. So, following the method that I just described, the first century of the Common Era, we have a lot of evidence that Judeans are keeping dietary rules because they're written in the Torah. So we find, for example, um, non-Jews, non non-Judeans, Romans, writers that are writing in Greek and Latin, um, it's very clear to them that Judeans don't eat pig. This was widely known, there are jokes that, that Roman authors are writing about this, um, that, that, that Jews don't eat pork. And I think the jokes are actually a great source of evidence because if people didn't know that this was the case, the jokes wouldn't be funny. 
So just as an example, there's, this actually comes from a slightly later period, but it's, it is said of Augustus that he would joke about Herod. Herod was a nasty fellow. He killed off many of his family members, including his, his own sons. Uh, Augustus was said to have said that he would prefer to have been Herod's pig rather than his son, because his pig he would never have slaughtered, his son. Um, so again, this would not have been a funny joke if Jews actually were eating pig. So clearly this was something that, which, which was well known. Um, the archaeological evidence fits in very well with this, what we find in the texts. So when we excavate archaeological sites uh, that are known to have been Jewish sites, we tend to not find pig bones. Again, I'm talking about the first century of the Common Era. Uh, and when we excavate non-Jewish sites in the same area, the same geographic area, we do find pig bones. And in the book, I, I, I give uh, statistics of sites that, we, that, that have been studied. So now, I, here I need to make a methodological point. And that is the fact that we don't find pig bones doesn't necessarily mean that people are abstaining from eating pig because of a law in the Torah. It's not necessarily the case. Um, people could not eat pig for a variety of reasons. People could not raise pigs for a variety of reasons. Um, but it is consistent. The evidence is consistent with what we know from the texts that Judeans were, were uh, abstaining from, from pig. Pig is not the only prohibition, dietary prohibition that we find in the Torah. We have other prohibitions, for example, fish. And we have textual evidence and archaeological evidence as well uh, that Judeans were not eating scaleless fish. When we look at uh, earlier periods of time, so we continue to find textual evidence and the archaeological evidence uh, fits well with this from the first century before the Common Era and even the second century before the Common Era, any time prior to this, we simply do not have evidence that Judeans were, uh, were adhering to, to, to any kind of dietary laws. We, we do not have any, any evidence of this sort. The purity rules. So in, and I'll be speaking about this in a, what is it, tomorrow, a seminar? Tomorrow afternoon. Uh, we spend about an hour speaking about this, so if you're interested in purity, uh, you can come to that. Uh, I'll just very briefly touch on this here. In the first century of the Common Era, Jews, at least in the Judea, Judea, Galilee, uh, the southern Levant, were adhering to a very large set of purity rules that we find concentrated in Leviticus, but elsewhere in the Pentateuch. Um, there's all kinds of, of, of things that are considered sources of impurity. And the way that one removed the impurity was generally through water, through washing in water. And in fact, we find texts which tell us that in the first century of the common era, ordinary Judeans were keeping these rules um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And we find archaeological evidence for this as well. So we find stepped pools throughout uh, throughout the southern Levant, mostly in homes. We find them in courtyards. We find them in other contexts as well. So, for example, uh, next to wine presses and olive presses, uh, and the, clearly these were being used by the workers in the wine presses and olive presses uh, in order to ensure the purity of w what they were producing. We find them in bathhouses. We find them next to potter in pottery production sites. We find them everywhere where there were Jews uh, living in the southern Levant, in Galilee, in Judea, in the uh, Transjordan as well. Where there are no Judeans, we don't find these, uh, these stepped pools. These stepped pools first appear towards the end of the second century BCE. There are no stepped pools uh, of any sort prior to this period of time. Chalk vessels is another phenomenon which uh, is related to uh, purity, and I'll get into more details tomorrow. Um, but we find uh, this unique family of, of vessels which are made of chalk stone, and we find them, again, only at Jewish sites. So both um, tableware, large storage uh, jars, when we put them on a distribution map, again, very similar to what we found with the stepped pools, 
anywhere where there are Judeans, we find these chalk vessels. Um, I've been particularly interested in the question of dating these vessels, when they first appear, when they disappear, because they at some point actually disappear. Um, and I've, I've actually conducted two excavations uh, in the Galilee, one at a site called Inotomitai, another at a site called Reina, um, in order to try to answer this question when, uh, when these vessels actually disappear. Um, and that I won't get into, but the question of when the vessels first appear is relevant to, to our discussion here. Um, and recent studies have shown that the vessels probably appear towards the end of the second century before the Common Era. Until, I would say, a couple of months ago, it was thought that they first appear in the time of Herod, towards the end of the first century before the Common Era, but we've been able to move, push this back a couple of decades to probably the end of the second century before the Common Era. So around the same time that the stepped pools appear, these stone vessels appear as well. Before this time, nothing. Figural art. So, of course, the second commandment, uh, we're all familiar with. What is the second commandment? You can say it in Swedish, it's okay. No graven images, okay? Uh, no graven images. And in the first century of the Common Era, this was widely understood to mean no figural art, no depictions of humans or animals of any sort whatsoever. So what we find, we have plenty of Jewish art from the first century of the Common Era. But this is always either geometric patterns, like we see here on this mosaic floor, or floral patterns, or uh, architectural designs, never humans or animals, almost without exception. We never find humans or animals in Jewish art from the first century of the Common Era. This is true as well in the first century before the Common Era, going into the second century before the Common Era. Um, I think one of the... Uh, one of the uh, finds that I think is the most outstanding with regard to this are the coins. Coins, as we know, although perhaps we don't know because people don't use coins anymore, um, but in the, in the days when people used to use coins, what would you always find on the coin? Especially if you're living in a, uh, under a monarch, like you do here in Sweden. Whose face appears on the coin? The king or the queen, always, right? Um, in republics, it's a bit different, but certainly when there's a monarch, you always find the, the, the face of the monarch on the, on the coin. And this is already from antiquity. It was ubiquitous in antiquity. You always have the face of the monarch on the coin. On Judean coins that were minted in Judea for Judeans, you never find the face of the ruler. Never. What do you find instead? You find what I would call, instead of the portrait of the ruler, you find what I would call a textural portrait. Um, so we have here, Yohanan HaKohen HaGadol V'chever HaYehudim, or Rosh Chever HaYehudim, which, which refers to John Herkinus, the high priest, and the council of the Judeans, or the head of the council of the Judeans. To my mind, this is a textural portrait. This is, instead of the portrait of the ruler, it's the portrait just in words, because that's okay. And to my mind, this is really outstanding in terms of what, it's, what the message is. The message is, we don't depict a human being on our coins. We don't do that. And in fact, on all of the coins from the time of John Hercanus I, from, and here we actually have pretty good dates, because the earliest coins of John Hercanus are dated to 132 or 131 BCE. So we haven't actually uh, an exact date for the earliest of these Judean coins. And from that period of time and onwards, there are no depictions of, of humans or animals on any of the Judean coins. Prior to this time, we actually have Judean coins, which all have figural art. Every single one of them, not a single Judean coin, minted in the 3rd century, 4th century BCE, does not have Figural art. Every single coin has figural art. So, for example, the coins that were minted under the Ptolemies have an eagle on one side uh, and the face of Ptolemy on, on the other side. In Hebrew, 
minted the word Yehuda, uh, Judea. Um, we have this as well on um, coins from the Persian period. So we have here uh, the, the face, the human face, frontward facing face. Interesting question what this is meant to depict. The other side we have the owl of Athena with the Hebrew phrase Chizkiah Pecha, Hezekiah the satrap. So this was a coin minted in Judea, probably in Jerusalem, by a Judean ruler, by a Judean um, authority, with, uh, with figural art, not only figural art, but actually the Owl of Athena. This is from the 4th century BCE. And perhaps one of the most salient finds is this coin, which was minted not only by a satrap, but actually by the high priest of Jerusalem. Yohanan uh, HaKohen, this is not John Harkness, this is from the Persian period, this is a Yohanan who was a uh, high priest in Jerusalem, again, with the Owl of Athena smack dab in the middle. We'll get back to that uh, a little bit later. Tefillin and Mezuzot. So, Tefillin, which are known as phylacteries, Mezuzot, uh, on the doorposts. I won't get into great detail here. I have a whole project on this. It's a fascinating topic in and of itself. I don't know why scholars are not as interested in this topic as I am. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating topic. I won't get into much details, but we have four places in the Pentateuch which speak about putting a, a sign on the hand and uh, either a remembrance or totafot between the eyes. And in the first century of the Common Era, this was understood to refer to a physical object, uh, leather cases which were divided into four compartments. In these compartments, we have slips made of skin, which are inscribed with these exact, these precise verses from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, this was a very literal understanding of these verses, and this is what was done in the first century of the Common Era. We, I've, in the project that I'm working on now, I have a paleographer working on these uh, texts, and she has been able to identify Hesmanian uh, script on the basis of paleography. Um, so we have this, this, this ritual being done in the Hesmanian period. We don't have any such objects any time prior to the Hesmanian period, and the same goes for uh, Mizuzot, the um, inscriptions that are to be uh, posted on the doorposts, nothing before the Hesmanian period. Miscellaneous practices. Circumcision. We don't have any archaeological evidence for circumcision. Um, that's actually not true. There, there, is, there, there, there has been discussion about certain phalluses made of stone, uh, which are said to be not circumcised, or there are some that are said to be circumcised. I'm, I'm skeptical of this whole, this whole issue. Putting that aside, we don't actually have any archaeological evidence for this, but um, we know that in the first century of the Common Era, Jews were circumcising their, their sons, and this was regarded as a law of the Torah. Right? So, so we have texts which speak of this as being a law. This is a legally mandated practice. Um, and while we do have uh, earlier texts from the Hebrew Bible, which speak of Israelites being circumcised as opposed to Philistines that were not circumcised, um, from which we can, uh, I think, rightly assume that the, that that Israelites or or um, who, who, the the groups that we're talking about, Judeans, were circumcised. It's never said to be something that's mandated by any sort of law. It's never said to be something which is um, which is legally mandated because it's written in the Torah or, or anything of the like. Um, actually, no explanation is given. So, if we're looking for evidence of circumcision as a legal, uh, as a legal practice, we have no evidence for this prior to again the second century, before the Common Era, when we have stories about, um, you know, with the Hasmonean stories, uh, the Hasmonean revolt, and so on and so forth. There are uh, stories about uh, circumcision uh, playing an important role as a legally mandated uh, practice. The Sabbath prohibitions. First century of the Common Era, um, we find Jews uh, practicing, uh, 
um, Jews refraining from all sorts of activities on the Sabbath, in deference to the Torah. It really uh, stood out to me as I was as I was writing the book, um, thinking about this. That in the New Testament, we find stories surrounding the crucifixion, which is at least in the Synoptic Gospels is said to have occurred on Friday. So it said that uh, Jesus was crucified on, on a Friday, his body was taken down, he was buried, and his disciples rested on the Sabbath, and it was only after the Sabbath that they continued to, to, uh, to, to deal with the body, with, with uh, the, the spices and so on. Um, and it struck me that we find Sabbath prohibitions or, 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 or Sabbath observance and in fact, Judaism, what I'm describing here in the New Testament, we don't find it in the Hebrew Bible. We don't find descriptions of Judeans, Israelites, keeping these rules anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, outside of the Pentateuch. Uh, there are, to the contrary. Right? So when we're talking about uh, the Sabbath, we have biblical writers that are saying you should keep the Sabbath. You're not keeping it. You should be keeping it. We don't have any stories about Judeans actually keeping uh, the Sabbath, nor do we have uh, archaeological evidence, uh, epigraphic evidence, let's say, uh, which supports the notion that, that Judeans were keeping the Sabbath. There is a, an ostracon um, which was found um, in, in a, at a site called Mitzat Cheshaviyahu. It's a question of exactly how to read it and if it refers to the Sabbath at all, in fact, um, but even if it does refer to Sabbath, uh, there's, there's nothing in there about Sabbath prohibitions. So there's, this, this isn't, this isn't uh, evidence that, that, that people are keeping any kinds of, 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 of Sabbath laws. Passover. We have evidence of Passover observance. I just mentioned the New Testament. We have uh, texts which talk about wide-scale observance of a Passover sacrifice, abstaining from leaven uh, on, on, on Passover, and so on and so forth. Um, we don't have any evidence prior, again, to the Hasmonean period that anyone was keeping any of these rules. The one piece of evidence which is often touted for early observance of the Passover is the so-called Passover papyrus. This is a papyrus that was found on the island of Elephantine uh, in Egypt, in southern Egypt. And, in fact, this papyrus speaks about Passover. It speaks about refraining from eating leaven on Passover. It speaks about uh, eating unleavened bread on Passover, seven days. It fits exactly with the Pentateuchal rules for Passover. Not only the Pentateuchal rules, it also fits very well with rabbinic rules because it says that you shouldn't drink beer on Passover. It's all in there, except that it's all in the reconstructed parts of the papyrus. As you can see, the papyrus is, half of the papyrus is, at least half of the papyrus is missing. And the reconstructed parts are the parts that speak about the Passover. What we actually have preserved says nothing of this sort. Now, you can reconstruct the, all of these Passover rules into the papyrus. I mean, it, it's not impossible. It's certainly possible to, 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 to have such a reconstruction. The problem is that if you take the biblical rules for Passover as the basis for your reconstruction, you cannot do a 360-degree turnaround and use though that reconstruction as evidence that these rules were being kept. That's called circular reasoning. I actually had a, a three-hour debate with somebody, I won't say his name, a biblical scholar, who agreed with me that this is circular reasoning, but he argued that circular reasoning is, is, is legitimate. It's a legitimate... It, I have to admit, circular reasoning is a sort of reasoning. So he, he's right there. But it's not a legitimate sort of reasoning. A smart guy, but... Okay. Um, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Today, it's regarded as the holiest day of the Jewish year, but it wasn't always that way. And in fact, we don't have any evidence prior to the Hasmonean period. Hasmonean period, we can talk about it, 
prior to that spending period, there's no evidence that people were keeping, uh, were, were observing any such fast. Sukkot, first century of the Common Era, we have lots of evidence that Jews were keeping Sukkot. We have it on coins. So, you know, your average Judean that was walking the streets of Jerusalem or anywhere in Judea or Galilee during the Great Revolt would have had these coins in his pocket. And anytime he took out uh, bronze coins, he would have seen the four species of the holiday of Sukkot on the coin. So this was something which was certainly well known. Um, and we seem to have evidence going back all the way to the Hasmonean period uh, for these practices prior to the Hasmonean period, no evidence. I included Minorot because we have interesting archaeological evidence to this effect. Uh, we know that there was a seven-branched menorah in the Jerusalem temple in the first century of the Common Era. It was taken to Rome. We have it on the Arch of Titus. There's no doubt about that. We find the menorah um, inscribed in graffiti in various, at various sites in, in Judea. Not so long ago, uh, the menorah was found on this stone at the Magdala Synagogue. We find no depictions of the menorah anywhere prior to the Hasmonean period. It seems that this was not something that Jews knew about. The synagogue. The reason I included the synagogue, even though the synagogue doesn't appear anywhere in the Pentateuch, it's not a, a, a practice or prohibition that we find in the Torah, but to my mind, the synagogue was the engine for the um, wide-scale um, dissemination of the notion of the Torah. We have to remember that in antiquity, People didn't have books, today, like, like today. Nobody has books. Um, but in antiquity, people didn't have books. They didn't have iPads or, or computers either. How could the detailed laws of the Torah have spread amongst the common people without people having books? And even if people did have books, they didn't know how to read them. Literacy was, was presumably not something that was very common. The synagogue in the first century of the Common Era was an educational institution. Today we hear synagogue, we think of it's a place of prayer. In the first century of the Common Era, the synagogue was a, an educational institution. It was a place where Judeans would gather on a weekly basis. The one person from the community who knew how to read took out the one scroll that the community owned and read before the entire congregation and in this way disseminated exactly what it was that was written in this book. And, just, and also interpreted what was written. So you had uh, a reading, a, a more formal reading, and a more dynamic discussion, which went on in a public forum, in a very communal forum, where ordinary people would come on a weekly basis to, to hear uh, the, the, the Torah being read. Uh, we, we have texts which describe this. We have uh, epigraphic evidence, which describes this as well. Uh, the Theodotus inscription, which describes the synagogue as being this particular synagogue as having been built for the reading of the law and the teaching of the commandments. This is what was done in the first century of the Common Era. We have no evidence for any such institution prior to the Hasmonean period. The texts that describe the synagogue are all from the first century of the Common Era. The Has what we have from the Hasmonean period is a building, which has been identified as, as a synagogue, we have no texts or archaeological evidence which suggest any such institution, again, prior to the Hasmonean period. Again, I think this is very important because it's hard to imagine how Judaism could have spread amongst the common people without some kind of institution like the synagogue, without some kind of way, some kind of mechanism, some kind of engine for disseminating uh, the, the laws of the Torah. Again, because the laws of the Torah are so... Uh, detailed and so complex, and th there's just so many of these laws, there had to have been some way for, for the laws to have spread, and I think the synagogue is the likely, uh, the likely engine for this. This leads us to the last, the final chapter. Um, and as I said, what I do in the final chapter, instead of going backwards in time, I look through three periods of time prior to our terminus antiquem. So we saw chapter after chapter, the middle of the second century before the Common Era is our terminus antiquem, the Hasmonean period. Prior to this time, we have no evidence that Judeans were keeping the laws of the Torah. 
Okay, what, what was going on in these periods prior to the second century before the Common Era? And here I look at three periods of time. I begin with the Persian period. So let's say the 5th century before the Common Era, 5th and 4th centuries before the Common Era. What do we know about this period of time? What do we know about Judeans during this period of time? We have some evidence from Judea, some evidence from the island of Elephantina that I mentioned, and from Babylonia as well. And when we look at this evidence, what we find doesn't appear to be Judaism. What we find is, for example, in Judea, we find, as I mentioned, coins which depict foreign gods. Athena, um, we find uh, on every single one of the coins, as I, as I mentioned, we have figural art, but not only figural art, foreign gods. We find uh, fish bones from this period of time in Jerusalem, which are prohibited by the Pentateuch. We find catfish, we find shark, cartilage, and rays, which are all uh, fish that, that lack scales. Um, so, so what we find from Judea doesn't look like what we would expect to find if Judaism was, if, if the Torah was, was recognized and, and, and widely observed. At Elephantine as well, we have, at Elephantine we're lucky, we have texts. None of the texts suggest that any of the Judeans living in Elephantine ever heard of the Torah. To the contrary, we find, again, at Elephantine, uh, the Judean god there, his name was Yahu, uh, or Yaho, and, he's, and he has a temple, which is, not, which, which is not in keeping with, let's say, the Deuteronomy laws of not building a temple outside of Cisjordan. Um, but we find the Judeans worshipping, or at least acknowledging, other gods as well. So we find, uh, for example, an Elephantine text which talks about collecting donations for the temple of Yaho, but also distributing those monies amongst two other gods. Um, and we find Judeans as well uh, naming their children after other gods. We find Judeans uh, um, uh, um, giving oaths to other gods. And nothing that we find at Elephantine suggests that the laws of the Torah were known, or, or the stories of the Torah for that matter. Uh, in Babylonia, we have an... Um, two archives of texts, the Murashu archive and the Aliyahudu archive, which, similar to Elephantine, uh, we find Judeans taking oaths by foreign gods and uh, naming their children with names of, of gods aside from uh, the Judean god. So when we look at the, 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 all of the evidence together from the P Persian period, this doesn't seem to be the most likely period of time for Juda Judaism to, emerge, to have emerged. Not only do we not have positive evidence for any kind of wide-scale observance of the laws of the Torah, we have negative evidence. So I would say that the Persian period, which is the period which most scholars would say Judaism emerged in, does not seem the most likely time for this to have happened. Moving onwards in time, the early Hellenistic period, um, to my mind, is a more likely period of time. Um, and again, this is still a period of time when we have no evidence, no positive evidence for wide-scale uh, knowledge of the Torah or observance of the Torah. Um, and in fact, it's, it's something of a black hole in terms of our knowledge of what was going on in, at, at this period of time. Um, but one of the suggestions that I make in the book is that the early Hellenistic period is when Judeans come into contact for the first time with a notion of written law. So um, the notion of written law, and I, I don't have time to get into the details here, the notion of written law um, was, is an invention essentially of, of, the Greek, uh, of the Greeks. And the Torah, as we know of it from the Hasmonean period and onwards, was regarded as a, as, a, as a form of written law. And if we're trying to think of a Sittenleben, which makes sense for when Judaism might have emerged, um, it's hard to imagine such a thing happening before the Jews come into direct contact with the Greeks, and that would have been in the early Hellenistic period. In the end of this whole discussion, and, and, and with this I will end, we have to uh, recognize that our earliest evidence, which 
helped us establish the terminus antiquem is only from the Hasmonean period and onwards. And that might suggest to us that perhaps it was during this time, in fact, that the Judeans first came to know of the Torah and to adopt it as, as, their, as, as the law of the land. And the suggestion that I make uh, in the book, towards the end of the book, is that, in fact, perhaps it was the Hasmoneans that were the um, that were the the people that brought the Torah to the to the to the Judeans, adopted the Torah as the law of the land, and it was essentially from that period of time and onward that we have what we can call Judaism. There's no, I would say there's no <clears throat> positive evidence for this. We don't know, we, we have no textual sources, let's say, that tell us that the, that the Hasmoneans did that. But we do have textual sources that tell us that the Hasmoneans did this very thing with non-Judeans. So John Herkinus, we were told by Josephus and by, <clears throat> by earlier writers as well, um, is said to have conquered Edumea. We actually have archaeological evidence for, for, for the conquest of Edumea. Uh, the archaeological evidence actually dates pretty well to around 112 BCE. Um, and these historical texts tell us that the Edumeans were, force, were forced to circumcise themselves and to adopt the laws of the Torah. And from that period and onwards, the Edumeans... Uh, kept the laws of the Torah just like the Judeans. They were absorbed into the Judean uh, ethnos. When John Harkinus, uh conquered, he, the, the, after that he conquered uh, Samaria, his son, Aristobulus I, did something very similar in Galilee. He conquered this uh, ethnos called the Eturians and did the same thing. He forced them to circumcise and to uh, adopt the laws of the Torah. So we know that the, the Hasmoneans were doing this. They were forcing the laws of, they were forcing the peoples that they conquered, that they were ruled, to keep the laws of the Torah. I don't think it's much of a stretch to suggest that the predecessors of John Harkonnes I, if not John Harkonnes I, did this very thing with the Judeans themselves and, and, and enforced the laws of the Torah as, as policy, as political policy on uh, the Judeans that they that they ruled over. So, I, th I think this is <clears throat> a most likely explanation for uh, when and how Judaism first emerged. Um, that's it. That's that's the argument that I put forth in the book. I want to stress. There's a few things that I want to stress before I open up to questions. I'm sure there will be questions. Um, the I, if it wasn't clear enough. I'll, I, I want to make it very clear, again, what I'm doing in this book and what I'm not doing. I'm asking the question of Judy, what is, when does Judaism begin, when, and I'm defining Judaism as large-scale, widespread practice of the laws of the Torah. So I'm not asking when the rules of the Torah were first written down, when they were first thought up. Um, that's, the, the, in a, it's an inc incredibly important question. I'm not asking that question. I'm asking when ordinary Judeans came to know of these rules and put them into practice. So it's theoretically possible that the laws have been written down, even close to the form that we have when we get to the first century, for hundreds of years. It's possible. I'm not getting into that question. Even if that's the case, that doesn't mean that people know about these rules or are keeping them. So th these are two very separate questions, and we, we have to be careful about that. Um, so that's, that's number one. Number two, it's very important to me, the first six chapters, where I look at the evidence and I can tell you, I can swear on a Bible, if that helps, that I don't know of any evidence prior to the second century before the common era. And if you have evidence, please let me know. I'll be happy to learn. Um, that's a data-driven study. The last chapter is much more speculative because, by, as I said, by definition, prior to the, the, the uh, Terminus Antiquem, we don't have evidence. And there we have to deal in, a, in more specu speculations rather than, um, than hard data. And yet, and yet, I think uh, the evidence suggests that the Persian period is not 
the most likely period of time for Judaism to have emerged. I think it's much more likely that it was in the Hellenistic period, probably under the Hasmoneans, um, and and that's that's the most that we can say at this at this stage. So, thank you for your attention. <laughs>